Welcome to the Autism and Theology podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Autism and Theology at the University of Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Autism and Theology podcast. My name is Krisha. I'm one of your hosts and I'm so excited to join you this week. This podcast is a space where we'll be engaging with the latest conversations in the field of autism and theology, share relevant resources and promote ways that enable faith and non-faith communities to enable autistic people to flourish. Our podcast episodes are released on the first Wednesday of every month with Catch Chat on every third Wednesday where your hosts will share news and answer your questions. This podcast is run from the University of Aberdeen's Centre for Autism and Theology. Today I am joined by one of Kat's co-directors, Leon Van Omen, to talk about his upcoming book on autism and worship. Thank you for joining me today, Leon. It's great to see you. Good to see you too, Chrissia, and great to be here on the podcast. So we heard a little bit about the centre last week. I'm wondering for um, those who didn't tune in last time, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Leon van Ommen. I am co-director of uh, the Centre for Autism and Theology. I'm senior lecturer in practical theology all at the University of Aberdeen. I'm, on a personal level, I really like coffee, if that is relevant to know. And I like music, both listening to music, playing music, and, um, well, to share this as well, I love donkeys. I approve because I also, I love animals full stop. So donkeys are absolutely fine in my book. There you go. <laughs> so I wonder what led you to write um, a book on autism and worship? That's a great question. And um, I think that the question is almost the same as um, what led me to researching autism, I think. Um, so the Two things. So the, the, the book is titled Autism and Worship, a Liturgical Theology. So my background is in liturgical studies uh, within practical theology. So I'm interested in the practices of churches, uh, that their worship practices. And um, when I became a lecturer in Aberdeen, um, I was being you know, asked, challenged, required, whatever the right word is, to find a, a research niche, so to speak. So it was my my kind of area of research that is really contributing something uh, in in maybe original ways, and um, yeah, at, at the point it just seemed so self-evident to combine my two main interests, liturgy or worship, and uh, and autism. So I was like, okay, so if we look at the worship services through an autistic lens, um, insofar I can do that, of course, as a non-autistic person, but listening to autistic people, their experiences, reading uh, about their experience, all of that. So so what was what that going to look like? And so I uh, got a little bit of funding and a couple of years ago to start researching that and um, that eventually resulted in this book. That's fantastic. Certainly what I've found in research in this area is there's bits and pieces, but there's bits on worship and there's quite a bit on autism but not necessarily people talking 
to autistic people about their experiences. So it's fantastic to see the two together. And I wondered um, what particularly led you to particularly focus on autistic people? Yeah. I think a couple of things um, led to that. And uh, one is uh, professionally, um, a few years ago, uh, Grant McCaskill, our other co-director, started the Center for Autism and Theology, back then with a different name. And he knew that I had also a personal interest in in autism. And and he said, well, would you like to join this effort together with uh, some other colleagues, John Swinton and Brian Brock? And, um, And so... So the Center for Autism and Theology was established then. And, and that was at the same time that I had this challenge, like, okay, so what is it that you are going to do as a lecturer with a research remit? And yeah. and so that, that was kind of, you know, things kind of went hand in hand, as it were. So, yeah, as I said, I have a personal interest in autism. Um, I think uh, there is very little uh, theology being done in a vacuum. It's always um, personal in a way. And so without going into too much detail, uh, it, I do know a lot of autistic people in my environment. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, th- that's that's how that came about. That's, that's really interesting. And having looked at the, the, what you've written about in your book, it's just so interesting, especially a lot of the ideas that you talk about. I wonder what some of the key themes that or ideas that you wrote about in your book that you think would be particularly useful to either chat about or to share with listeners today sure I, th- I think the main the main theme is presence um and, and maybe it's useful to talk a little bit about why i kind of landed on that theme so if, when, when i started researching autism i read a wonderful book by stuart murray um it's called representing autism and he kind of discusses how autism is represented in culture uh so um in in tv uh, movies internet um uh blog posts uh those kind of things yeah and um he starts his book well on the cover of his book is is a picture that was taken in 1956 if i'm not mistaken of the first kind of autism facility school in the uk and uh, you see two girls on a seesaw and in the introduction of that book murray discusses this picture from various different perspectives and theories of autism and and so he, he says well you know if you have theory a of autism then this is what you might see in the picture and if you have theory b this is what you might see in the picture so maybe you think that you know the the girls are kind of self-contained just happy with themselves in their own world or you may see joy or you may see sadness or whatever so and and then at the end of the discussion he says well whatever your theory of autism is one thing just stands and that is that the girls are present yeah the girls are there and i don't know that just got under my skin or something like that it's just i've never forgotten that discussion and that has really been a catalyst for my own thinking that whatever we think about autism, autistic people are present in the churches. Well, 
if they yeah. are. And of course, there's the next bit in the book. Then, well, if you look at the, statist uh, the statistics, then and, and anecdotally, we know that a lot of autistic people don't make it to church. And so there is the absence. And, and so there you get the, the theme of absence and presence. And then I kind of elaborate on that by having a, a parallel um, pair of words, as it were. And that is, it's not just absence, it can also be ignoring. And so, whereas I try to answer or address the problem of absence with the concept of presence, I was looking for another concept that can parallel presence as a response to ignoring autistic people. So ignoring means basically uh, autistic people are there, but, you know, we ignore their preferences, their gifts, their challenges, need for accommodations if they are there. And so over against ignoring, I landed on the concept of availability. So it, what I develop in the book is a theology of presence um, understood as a theology of availability. And I draw on a, a work of philosopher called uh, Gabriel Marcel, Marcel, a French philosopher, and I worked it out in with theological concepts such as kenosis in particular. But that was long <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> it would be really interesting to hear a little bit about the theology of availability for our listeners to give them a bit of a taster of what you're going to just be talking about in your book. Okay. Um, well, let me try this. Um, so I'm I'm going to give a, an example that Mar uh, Marcel uh, used himself. So he speaks about two people sitting on a train or sitting in a room. Well, he gives both examples, actually. So I'm kind of combining two examples into one now. So you can you can sit in a room with someone and well, first of all, that person might not be interested in you at all. And you're just, you know, this is the typical waiting room situation. You're waiting in the, in the GP's office or whatever, and you're just looking at each other, but you know, not really talking. So so there's a even though you're both present in the room, you're not present towards each other. You're not available to each other, right? Now, one step further, maybe someone is asking you some questions, but you can just see in the way that a person replies to you that they are not really interested. And, and then Marcel makes quite an interesting claim. He says, that person can actually make me feel stranger to myself. So if that person repeats what I'm saying in a particular way of response in a particular way, and I feel or I sense that uh, that person hasn't really listened or was not really interested in what I was saying, actually, it it is estranging. It's like, oh, but, but what did I say? Didn't it make sense? And, and all that self-doubt, you know? And so you become yeah. stranger unto yourself almost. And, or not almost, that, that's what can lit quite literally happen. So availability is the opposite of that. So you can also have, uh, this is another example that he gives, and that's quite a nice example. He says, well, <laughs> and you need to realize this, this is like 60 years ago that he wrote this, uh, yeah. or even longer, 60, 80 years. And so times were different. So he is uh, describing a situation that you're walking around in a city, it is late at night, it's dark, you don't feel particularly safe there and you've lost your way. Yeah. And so you don't know how to go to your hotel or whatever. And he says, so so you decide to speak to someone who's walking around there and you say, well, can you help me find my way? And that person just sees you and with compassion and all of that shows you the way. 
and he says that that one minute conversation in that one minute i just felt so seen i just felt so heard i felt understood that person really cared for me to be safe and for me to find my way home or to the hotel wherever it is and so there you have a very different situation where someone really listens to you really tries to understand you and so that person even though a stranger became available to the other and so that's that the idea of availability of being really available to each other does that does that make any sense Krisha? that does and i think it's really interesting to have this shared because while i was listening i was thinking of things all the things we think about in autism research like autistic people aren't necessarily seen kind of representatively not necessarily listened to or heard people might be asked kind of what they think and it might be disregarded by researchers Mm -hmm. issues of power and i think this theology of availability taps into a lot of this within a, a theological context really really well um I was going to ask if there were any other particular um, themes in the book, aside of the kind of theology of availability, that particularly struck you. Mm. Yeah, well, so thinking about it, so the other, yeah, okay, I've I've actually skipped one thing. So before finding that response to absence and the response to ignorance, I think um, what I do in the, in the in the book is I try to understand where does the absence come from. Why are autistic people uh, absent or ignored? And and so I, I talk quite a bit about the concept of normalcy. So in, for those familiar with disability studies, uh, you will recognize that concept from, from the area. Um, but it's used in, in other disciplines as well, of course. Um, so normalcy basically is, well, what, how I define it from top of my head, so don't quote me on this, um, read the book instead. Um, I define normalcy as the dynamic of guarding the boundaries of a community. And usually in disability studies, that is used pejoratively. So in other words, it's a negative concept. Normalcy means this is our culture and in order to, or the culture of our community, and in order to belong to this community, you need to uh, play the game of that culture. You need to adapt to that culture. So if we require that um, you are silent in the worship service during the sermon, then that is what we require. And so if if you then come in and you're actually loud or you're just not sitting still on your chair, uh, chair or you feel even a need to jump up and down or whatever, then, then you are not conforming to the culture of that community. And... And the next thing is then very easily you will be judged because of that. And so you will be eventually excluded. So you 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 might be asked um, to sit, you know, at the back of the church. And I've said before, the back of the church is very close to the exit, metaphorically and quite literally. Right. And so so that's that dynamic of guiding the, the boundaries. So I think and, and this is something in which I I think I'm I'm slightly different than than uh, I use the concept slightly different from most people in disability studies. I turn it into a verb rather than a noun. So normalcy is a noun, of course, but I turn it in, into a dynamic. It's it's a dynamic of safeguarding the boundaries or guarding the boundaries of the community. So it's it's a very active concept, even though very subtle, even though people may not realize that they're doing it, but we do it all the time. <laughs> 
right? And it's there. And and so how do you address that? And so I address that by um, then replying with presence and, and with availability. So I skipped that step. So that's not a main theme. That normalcy, I, I do quite a bit with that in the book. And then um, to answer your question, what's the other theme? <laughs> um, or, or what what struck me? Um, one thing that um, that I quite enjoyed. Um, of course, I try to give a theological interpretation of of presence because Marcel is is a, is a philosopher, although he's quite theological in what he's saying uh, about. Um, a presence and he admits that as well um but then i was thinking okay so so how, what does that look like theologically and then i did quite a bit with the concept of kenosis the self-emptying of christ and and how we are as christians uh invited to participate in christ and therefore also participate in that movement of kenosis of emptying ourselves in other words making ourselves available right and then i I came across this this text in in, in uh, one Peter two, verse four, in which um, uh, Peter talks about um, the community being a, um, a temple of the Holy Spirit, and Christ is the cornerstone, and we are what's Christians living stones. and And I played a little bit with that text, as it were, and and I was thinking, so if if you're building in in our days, you have usually quite um, straight stones and you can easily lay them and all of that. And so bricklaying is usually done with quite, you know, regular stones, regular formats and all of that. Um, now, it might have been quite different 2000 years ago. I don't know how <laughs> how Peter was building houses, um, if he even did. But um, I was thinking about, OK, so if we're living stones as members of that community, if the living stones make up the building, the temple, um, we are also different. We are not all the same format, right? We are not all the same shape. We are very, very different. So, and and then kind of playing a little bit, and I hope people will forgive me for that. Playing a little bit with with autistic people sometimes being well, very often from a concept of normalcy being perceived as odd. I was playing a little bit with the concept of, of odd and weird stones. Like you have these odd-shaped odd stones, right? And nevertheless, they make up the community. And that's just, that was fascinating to do some thinking around that. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed myself uh, with, with playing a little bit almost with, with that. Yeah. I think it's always important when we write to enjoy the creative aspect. And as I was listening to you, I was almost thinking about some of my own research where I've looked at um people's views of inclusion and belonging and exclusion and this idea of no normalcy being done it's not a passive thing it is actively done even if people aren't aware yeah. they're doing it come has come through quite strongly in my right. work yeah. as well um, and yeah. so i think it's really really in such an important finding and especially where i found that people didn't necessarily think they wanted to they didn't realize that inclusion was worth talking about Whereas all the autistic people I've spoken to have gone, of course, it's an important thing. Of course, I want to <laughs> right. talk about it. Yeah. And I think that shows almost the analogy with the kind of the, the standard stones when everyone appears the same way they are the same. It's a different thing. Uh -huh. um, but if you feel like you're a diff different shaped stone compared to everyone else, it's clearly going to be really much more important to you. 
absolutely. Was there anything in your book that, or kind of findings from the research that you were surprised by or were unexpected in any way? There was one early on in my research a couple of years ago, um, I th- there was a really surprising finding that I have struggled with even in the beginning quite a bit. Um, but as researchers know, when you find something that you don't expect that some in, in the beginning, that is really problematic and it's annoying you because it doesn't fit your data set or whatever. But actually, when you're going to look into it into detail and, and really sit with that, it can become a catalyst for your research. And and so this was one of those moments. So um, uh, the last chapter in my book is about a church in Singapore, and the church is uh, centered around centered on autism. Really special church, and I was privileged to do some work with them. And I interviewed one of their leaders, and I asked them, like, so worshiping together with autistic people, how 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 has that influenced uh, the liturgy? And she said, well, it hasn't. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and by then I had done quite a few interviews in that community already. And, and people were saying how this, this church was special and so different from other churches. And and then there was this leader and, and, and she said, no, it it didn't really influence the liturgy. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, well, if you go to our church here and you go to another Anglican church, so there's an Anglican church, you go to an Anglican church uh, in another Anglican church in Singapore, you will find that that they have exactly the same liturgy. The liturgy doesn't change. The words are the same. The order of the service is the same, except for one one change. But I mean, right? it's largely the same. And I was really puzzled by that because on the one hand, I had all these stories like, this is such a different church. And on the other hand, there was this this pastor, he said, well, no, it's the same. And and I had to sit with that and I had to kind of listen to that. And uh, what does that mean? And to be honest, I didn't find any kind of difference in liturgical structure. It was like the preset words that, that you know, Anglican liturgies have. She was right. But the other people were also right. Now, how do you make sense of that? And And so... What I found was that the way they celebrated the liturgy or the worship service was different. It was tailored towards uh, autistic people. It was trying to be an inclusive community where it was absolutely all right to jump up and down, to walk out and in in and out. Um, it was absolutely fine to... Um, retreat to the balcony uh, where there's, there's like they have a glass... Uh, wall, as it were, between the balcony and the rest of the of the worship hall space. Um, and so, you know, if it's too loud downstairs, you can go up to the balcony and all of that. So there were a lot of things in place and, and the community was very understanding and accepting um, of, well, anything, <laughs> right? And that made the church very, very different indeed. But then in terms of the liturgy itself and the liturgical structures and the liturgical words, it was there was hardly any difference. And that was a real surprise to me to find that. Like you don't need to be completely different in order to become a church where autistic people really belong, just as anyone else. And it was a great finding. Yeah. Are there any churches kind of over here that you spoke to that where you were expecting that, or did you only speak to this? church in Singapore just for listeners clarity 
Yeah, so um, no, in terms of, of really studying one church and what they were doing, that was only my only church that I did that. But then in the UK, I had uh, about 13 interviews with autistic people, I think, and, and they told me about their church, of course. I, I haven't found any church that is entirely centered on autism. So you have churches that have special ministries, whatever you think about that. Um, we can discuss that. Uh, th there's churches that have disability ministry and all of that, but really centered on autism. I haven't found them so far. So if there's a listener who knows about such a church, I'm I'm really curious to learn and to hear from yeah, I'm them. Really, I'd be really interested to hear as well. And one question I had when you were telling me about the church in Singapore was about what they did for tailoring. I mean, how did they tailor things or was it a a cultural tailoring was it more kind of small reasonable adjustment style tailoring what kind of setup was there to make it effectively or not more than autistic friendly effectively an autistic fit yeah yeah now i'm going to answer your question but before i do that um it's it's important to say this church is not a blueprint for the churches necessarily um, because this church started from zero and is part of a daycare center and all of that. So there is a whole complex. Um, and so there was already a lot of professional expertise, if you will. Um, yeah. And and this was built as a chapel of that whole kind of enterprise, if you want, and those those services. So so it's the, the whole setup is is already quite unique. Um, which means that what they did, for example, and that answers your question, I think, they didn't have a building. And so when they were building this chapel, they were able to think through sensory issues and all of that, or sensory aspects from the very beginning. And so, for example, uh, they have very, very high, small windows in rainbow colors, which which makes for really, really nice soft lighting in the space for example um and so yeah they they could think through all of this before they even started as a community uh and then they had a, a group of about 30 people i think um yeah and then they started slowly and they they were growing um i think that the main the main thing, especially because liturgy doesn't change, as I just said, I think the main thing is really has to do with community. Yeah. And so from the outset, this was a community that was going to put autistic people central. Now, the extent to which they do that, that's something for discussion. I have discussed that with the leadership board, so I'm not afraid to say that in public. Um, and and they do in a certain sense, but I think there's there's much more they could do. Um, and and they are the first to say that they are not perfect, right? They they are the first to say leadership is the first to say like, oh, we we don't get it right all the time, um, but they're trying, and that's more yeah. than many other churches, right? Um, sorry, that sounds a little bit judgmental, but I think there's just I'm just passionate about this, and I think there every church can do so much more. Anyways, um, so yeah, I think it's community and 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 just valuing autistic people for who they are that's just like bottom line almost and and then on top of that there is maybe accommodations in terms of sensory needs or uh, those kind of things but it's really the acceptance of 
also of certain behavior, if you will. Um, yeah, I remember one one person said to me, um, yeah, it was a mother, I think, that I interviewed, and her son is autistic, and um, yeah, that was a couple of years ago, and he could be a bit violent, a bit aggressive, if you want, and um, and. And so she said, I remember first time we went into that church and and I was talking to someone and my son started kicking that person and she felt very embarrassed and all of that. And she said, oh, no, you can't do that and all of that. And that person who her son had kicked just said, oh, that's OK. And she said that was just so wonderful. Just that's OK. And she said, in that moment, I felt such an acceptance, such a welcome. And and I felt this was a place where I could come, actually, with my son. And that was just, that's just one of many stories that I've heard there. And that, that whole idea of it's okay, that is like a phrase that is repeated quite often there. And a the pastor there repeats it quite often. It's okay. And it gives a kind of relaxedness to the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, what I was thinking about with the it's okay was so often... In, in discourses, we paint a a tragedy narrative of autism and autistic people without realising that people can be distressed or that they're stimming or kind of trying to understand the world going on and actually just letting people, autistic brains and bodies, come as they are, it's okay and encapsulates that so well yeah. without actually saying that people are finding it, it things that could be difficult for them. It just except as is absolutely and and of course i realize i've been talking about mom i've talked about the other person not really about the autistic boy because we don't know why he did that and probably he was upset yeah. or stressed or anxious or whatever and and i think that's the beauty of that community and i think that is something that we can really repeat in any church in any community rather than seeing that as naughty behavior or or Putting it on the parents like, oh, can you please raise your children differently and, you know, let, let them behave and all of that. Actually, just just realizing that you don't know why this is happening and just give that space. Yeah. And over time and, and in this particular story, over time, that boy has become much more comfortable in that space. He doesn't he really doesn't kick everyone every Sunday. <laughs> That's not what he does. Um, he is actually quite comfortable now and, and a real valued member of the community. Um, so, yeah, yeah. We, we need to give that space because very often, um, you know, anyone else except for that boy or that person does not know what's going on. Maybe even the parents don't know what's going on um, because, you know, as you say, it's it, it can be anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I also I really liked the way you said that kind of there isn't a blueprint for how mm. a church to be for autistic people. I think that's really important, especially when we're kind of in an era of tick boxes and making sure and being inclusive with EDI packages. Um, and actually sometimes it's a, it almost reminds me of one of the uh, a student dissertation I read while I was doing the beginning of my research, which was we're not, we're not going to all get there unless we all come along. So it's a whole mm. culture thing coming along. And I wonder what your thoughts in light of that were of kind of special kind of special educational needs ministry, or I think special ministry you called it. Mm, yeah. Wow. Uh, well, in a way, you're opening a can of worms there. 
I find it a really difficult question to answer because um, on the one end, I would say um, a church where everyone belongs is a church where you can be together as a community. That's one thing. And in the Singapore church, for example, that happens uh, during the service for part of the service um, and also over lunch or part of the lunch. But actually in between, there is a special program, if you will, for autistic people just like there's a special program for the kids uh and and so they do go out of the main service if you want or whatever the main service is i think we need to question that from a liturgical point of view yeah. um but um so so yeah and, and the in, interestingly i was able to follow up uh last year uh with interviewing autistic people there and most of them are non-speaking or have learning disabilities and so it was quite a challenge to interview them, and that's that's a different story. But anyways, what I what I was struck by was that they really appreciated their own program. So, you know, we may come in as researchers or as theologians from a perspective like, yeah, no, and we need to, you know, make sure everyone is there and no segregation and all of that. Absolutely true. But at the same time, well, it turned out that they really loved their own program. And and this is something that is uh, set in, in disability theology as well. And sometimes um, that sometimes people with disabilities or disabled people, whatever language you prefer there, um, actually value their own specific programs. Um, however, I don't think that can be the whole story. Um, so even if there are specific programs, then how can we make sure that we are nevertheless one community and how can we make sure that we don't segregate certain people from the community because that is a real danger of course but at the same time the pastoral care for people does not mean that you always have everyone in the same group spiritual care doesn't mean and spiritual growth and discipling people doesn't mean that you have everyone all the time in the same group so it it is finding a balance there and i don't know that there's any blueprint for that either yeah that would almost be my gut feeling that it's quite a there is some nuance to this discussion and mm. i think this is why in a way i asked because i felt it followed on quite well and that almost it shows the value maybe we may attach to certain kind of programs or ways of doing things or actually saying perhaps this is something that's perhaps not as rigorous or simpler but actually it's just different and mm -hmm. actually being careful of the the value we put and also kind of how we do it what we people is as people in power do and as researchers coming in from the outside how we view what's going on as well really yeah. really important yeah absolutely I wonder what any kind of future directions that came out from the book or ideas for future research projects or things that kind of just made you think, oh, that's really interesting for the future. Well, there's many things that are very interesting, but I think where the real need that I um, have seen over the past couple of years, not just by writing this book, but by the research that uh, that I'm doing, that others are doing with the Centre for Autism and Theology and, and, and others as well, um, if you if you look at autism research just in general not theological research just in general then interestingly if the research involves participants usually the participants are not autistic people themselves 
but very often it's the parents, caregivers, professionals. So I think I'm I'm not entirely sure. Don't quote me on this number, but I think less than 50% of participants are autistic themselves. Now that's bad enough. But then, if you real and if you then look at the percentage of autistic people of the participants that are non-speaking and minimally speaking, that's only one to two percent. And all of this is rough estimates because there is there's no hard figures. But the studies that have been done, the meta studies looking at these kind of figures. They, they suggest that it's one to two percent of autistic participants are non-speaking, minimally speaking. If you realize that they form at least 25 to 35 percent of the autistic population, if you will, if you will, then there is clearly a mismatch between that. So I think one of the directions for research in general and something that I'm really keen that with our center uh, we, we will do is to involve non-minimally speaking people because they have so much to say. And um, I guess one of the big reasons why they're excluded from research is because we don't have methods. The right, I mean, our research methods of interviewing focus groups and all of that, they usually don't work. So we need to be much more creative as researchers. And I also wonder if that kind of maybe has an effect on, on churches as well. If we think in church, like how do we engage with non-speakers? Um, how do we do that? And in church, of course, we stumble into some of the same the same problems, but the problem is not with the autistic people necessarily. The problem is that we are not creative enough to engage with them. And so I think that is just one one thing that I'm really keen on. on. Yeah, I, I would really like to see that happening. Um, and then the same with, with autistic people from ethnic communities. They're vastly underrepresented in the research. Uh, whereas certainly in, in non-white communities, uh, spirituality is, and religion are very often very important. And so so there's clearly a need there. Um, so, yeah. And, th and then finally, I think, yeah, I, I would be excited to see just um, more research on other neurodivergences than, than autism. I Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very interested in that as well. But I've got only one life, so we need a lot of researchers in the centre to do all of that. We do. And I think certainly what you're saying about we don't necessarily have the methods to cap to capture the kind of the stories, the experiences, I think resonates really well. And that's a problem I faced in my research, just being strapped for time on a kind of a PhD budget really limited what I can do. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think it's just so important when we think about people who are almost denied either a diagnosis or identification and then we think about people who are kind of not kind of shut out from discourses and also when we think of representation of who does online surveys as well who you pick up there there's going to be groups of people that we consistently miss across yeah. all the different ways we yeah. do research or we ask questions or we reach out to people there's always going to be a group of body of people that we don't quite capture who have something really important to say and yeah. my mantra is everybody has something to share absolutely and and i think for theologians or, or christian researchers i think the imperative even is even more strongly because um if you look at the life of jesus he seemed to be um, habitually hanging out with people at the margins, people who were consistently overlooked, people who didn't make the cut, as it were. And Jesus seemed to be there. So if we want to find Jesus, then maybe that's a good place to start looking. 
So I think yeah. for Christians, it's even more important or, or they, they have an even stronger imperative, ethical imperative, if you want to, to do that kind of research. Definitely. And are there any takeaway points that churches or communities or individuals can take away from your book or learn from your book? Well, I hope so. so <laughs> um, I would, yeah, I think that, so the last chapter is about the church in Singapore. And as I just said, their liturgy didn't change. So so there's, I, I think there's just a lot, even though it's not a blueprint, and I say that in the book as well, it's not a blueprint, but I there's a lot to learn there. And I, I would say two things. First of all, listen to the people. There's there's no substitute for actually listening to the autistic members in your church or autistic people in general, if you want to find out how to create that community of belonging. The second thing is what that church in whilst that church in Singapore is entirely focused on autism and all of that, that example that I gave of the liturgy that doesn't change, um, uh, that, that that signals that it's not necessarily about big changes that you have to make in your church. Small changes can go a very, very long way. So on the one hand, um, don't wait for some kind of miracle from heaven before before you can actually do something and become that community where everyone is valued and, and included and, and really belongs. On the other hand, at the same time, what you do see in Singapore, and I write about it in the book as well, is that the pastor said we needed a paradigm shift. We needed paradigm shift in order to see that, see our autistic brothers and sisters as valued members of God's community, as maybe odd-shaped stones, but nevertheless living stones of that temple, right? And so that paradigm shift, of course, that is much, much harder. Um, but I think the first step is just try and do it and yeah. listen to the people. I think that's a really good kind of nugget of advice if people well, obviously we do want people to read your book but even if they only read this podcast that's almost one little bite-sized thing of changes don't have to be big I and mean, when you look at the, the other recommendations and resources out there like the guidelines that Anne Memmott has written a lot of the stuff she recommends aren't yep. particularly groundbreakingly big they're just small things that you could actually input that actually would benefit autistic people and anybody setting foot into a church would probably yeah. benefit from it. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we wrap up our fantastic conversation today, is there anything that you'd like to promote or share with listeners? Uh, my book, maybe? <laughs> Other than your fantastic book. <laughs> <Other> than... <laughs> no, just joking. Um well, as you say, I mean, not everyone is going to read the book, of course. Um, I'm realistic enough to to realize that. But um, if if you're interested in, I um, together with uh, Hannah, who was research assistant on 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 the project for a while, uh, we created two reports of that research uh, that are um, more accessible than reading an academic book. Even though I hope that the academic book is quite accessible, uh, but there's two two reports on YouTube, and maybe we can just uh, put the links in the show notes. Uh, there is an e-zine uh, which you can flick through yourself, and that is without uh, voiceover, so it's just silent for those who don't like um, that kind of auditory input. Um, and there is an animated video in in which there is a voiceover, um, and both are 
quite similar. They are not the same. They are quite similar. And so that is kind of um, those reports uh, are based on the research that we did, but are more focused on the practical tips for churches. So maybe that's something that people might want to look at. That's fantastic. And thank you so much for joining me today, Leon, and also listeners for our second episode. It's been a fantastic discussion. I've really enjoyed it. And it's been fantastic to see some of the parallels in both the research we do, even yeah. though there are differences, but there's also quite a bit of overlap as well. Certainly. And I'm really looking forward to reading, getting a copy of your uh, upcoming book, inciting it in my thesis. And if you if listeners, if you have any questions for Leon or for the hosts more generally, um, you can message us on Instagram or Twitter at Autism Theology, or you can send us an email at cat at abdn.ac.uk, or if you're like me and you find it easier to hear the actual words, cat at obden, abdn. .ac.uk. We'd love to hear from you, even if it's just to say hi. We love chatting to it. We're all very chatty. Please drop us a message. Our next chat, cat chat is out on the 18th of October, and Ian and I have had a lovely conversation about autism and theology, which we're really excited to share with you from an autistic perspective. We will see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Autism and Theology podcast. If you have any questions for us or just want to say hi, please email us at cat at abdn.ac.uk or find us on Twitter at Autism Theology. Our next webinar is on Thursday the 12th of October at 10am BST and we'll be hearing from Harry Gibbons on Telling a Good Story, Autism, Community and Dungeons and Dragons. You can register for the event via the link in our show notes.